Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Over the long term, stock markets go up because companies grow their earnings. But this year, the S&P 500 is going up despite stocks reporting their third straight quarter of falling profits. I want to know whether an earnings recession should worry us and if it's about to turn around. And in today's dumb question of the week, are share buybacks equivalent to dividends? All right, let's get into it. So this year, as we record this podcast, the S&P 500 is up around 17%. But I think it's hard to argue that that's based on fundamentals. Yeah, it's completely euphoria driven. This is what a strategist would call re-rating when you pay more for the same profits or actually less profits than you would have in the past. And that's just based on sentiment. And I think it's reinforced by the earnings season we're currently in, because it's the third straight quarter of falling earnings on a year-on-year basis. And that's just not reflected in the price of the index as a whole. So the S&P 500 is up 25% since its lows in October, and is only around 7% away from hitting a whole new all-time high. And I think this is why this is a really unloved rally, because it's not fundamentally driven. In my opinion, I think it's just an echo bubble of what happened in 2021. So you're not getting carried away then, Roman. It takes a lot to get you carried away, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I got carried away with what happened with banks, with regional banks, but I'm not really getting carried away with what's happening for the Nasdaq. But look, you could say that people are simply looking through this period of poor earnings and thinking, just look at the sunlit uplands which lie beyond this slight hiccup in earnings. That could be the claim. So let's talk about earnings then. Nearly 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 have reported their earnings for Q2. And what it looks like is that the blended earnings, so that's all the companies that have reported their actual numbers and forecasts of the remaining 10% or so who are yet to report, that looks like it will be an earnings decline of around 5.2% year on year. Not great. Now, it has to be said, the actual earnings isn't as bad as was forecast because Usually you have these forecasts about what's going to happen for the quarter. These are aggregated up by FactSet and others. And the expectation was pretty grim. So this is forecast by analysts who are presumably well-paid and well-informed. Well, certainly (laughs) well-paid. Okay. (laughs) Were you ever feeding into these aggregate numbers or were you separate to this? No. So this was very much the single stock analyst job. So there'd be a whole sea of stock analysts who'd specialise in a particular sector you know, you'd have this is the TMT analyst, this is the commodities analyst. They'd know each of the companies inside out. They're usually super bright graduates from the best universities and completely dedicated to their job. And often they were very familiar with the management of each of the companies they covered because they'd be on the earnings calls and they could actually get investors, institutional investors, in front of senior members of staff at these companies. That's one of the benefits of paying for research at an investment bank. What was the dynamic like inside the investment bank between the single stock analysts and you doing your cross-asset strategies and looking at all the different stuff? I think we were seen as the kind of airy-fairy macro strategist, top-down, who the hell knows what it all means. Whereas they were seen as a kind of nitty-gritty, hardcore analysts. Although, to be fair, I think they got it wrong as often as we did. And maybe they've got it wrong this time. So they were slightly too negative. They predicted a 7% decline in earnings as of the end of last quarter. And it's tracking to be around 5%, as we said. So it's bad, but not quite as bad as they thought it might be. 
And that's the other point about earnings, which is it's always compared to what the expectations were before the actual numbers came out. Because you could say that these forecasts are always kind of priced into the market. And then if you beat those expectations, you'd get a rally. If you underperform, you'd get a fall. Although, again, it's not that simple. But certainly the market's not been surprised because they said it was going to be bad and it has been bad. And just for some context, the five-year average earnings growth rate is 12%. So negative 5% is a long way short of what we've been used to. And again, for context, the growth rate of profit is roughly equal to the growth rate of the index as a whole. That's why valuations always snap back to the average price to earnings multiple. You can't have prices growing more quickly than earnings long term. That's the key, though, isn't it? It's long term. And in the short term, on the basis of a year or two years, it can kind of do what it wants. Although some people say that people are now willing to pay more as a multiple of earnings for US stocks because, I don't know, it's seen as a kind of epicenter of technology which spreads throughout the world. And so that's why people are more willing to pay for those stocks because of the upside. I mean, it's definitely the country that's at the forefront of IT and technology, isn't it? You can't really argue with that. So maybe it does deserve a premium. Yeah, it was interesting. There was a thread about this in Pensioncraft on our chat channels, and they were talking about this exact topic. They were saying maybe this price to earnings multiple, it looks expensive, but maybe people are simply willing to pay more for stocks nowadays. Because there is no hard and fast rule that says that the average should be 16 times or 20 times. It could be anything. And at the moment, it's almost 20 times in the US, isn't it? I think it's 19.2 times as we record this for the S&P 500. Which is pretty chunky. The long-term average is much lower. The 60-year average is around 15 times forward earnings. Now, the reason why that matters is you can almost think of it like a trampoline. You know, if you're on the high wire act, if the trampoline's 100 metres below where you're swinging about, well, that's kind of more scary. It's kind of pointless having a trampoline down that far. <laughs> I think you're going straight through it and hitting the ground. Put it this way, if it was me on the trapeze, my toes would be dragging on the uh, trampoline. I'd be really cautious. <laughs> I have actually done it as part of some kind of corporate team building exercise. Oh my God, that sounds like hell to me. <laughs> it was terrifying. And it felt like my arms were being pulled out of my sockets, but I did enjoy it. I bet the single stock guys were great at that. <laughs> as you know, all you macro guys, the glasses just fall off, bounce off the trampoline. <laughs> Lost up there. The trampoline right now, let's just think about that. So if the current multiple is 19.2 times forward earnings and the long-term average is 15 times, then to get us down to that long-term average would mean a 22% fall in the S&P 500. Whereas if we were trading at a multiple of 15 times, well, we're at fair value already. It's interesting to see the split in the market. So as always, growth stocks are priced at a premium to value stocks. And right now, growth is trading at around 22 times as a multiple, whereas values are around 17 times. Now, that means that people are willing to pay a lot extra for growth. And that's another dispersion that people look at. What's the multiple for growth versus the index as a whole or growth versus value? And during the peak of the euphoria in 2021, that dispersion was absolutely huge. People were paying a lot for growth. Yeah, I think the multiple for growth peaked at 30 times back in 2020. So we're not anywhere close to that yet. And how much do you think the dispersion went down to just after the global financial crisis entered its worst point? 
Well, I think people weren't expecting much growth, were they? So I imagine there was very little difference. Yeah, it was essentially nothing. So that's the problem. If you take all the euphoria out of markets, and there are various reasons why that can happen, you can get some kind of geopolitical shock or some kind of economic crisis. But if the euphoria drains out, then suddenly that dispersion melts away. And also you get those companies snapping back to much more realistic valuations. And they're going to snap a long way right now. I mean, the thing that could cause them not to snap back is that maybe earnings will grow quickly from here. So analysts are predicting that earnings will grow just 0.2% in Q3. So not a lot of growth coming up there. And 7.6% in Q4. So there they do see it picking up. And then next year, 2024, they see it really bouncing back as 12.2% growth. Do you think this sounds realistic? How do they get to these numbers? Well, remember, this is an aggregated overall number and it'll be market cap weighted. So it's dominated by those big tech companies. And those, of course, have been driving this rally. So if it is the case that earnings really improve for those tech companies, then yeah, why not? You could see a big year on year increase. But interestingly, the analysts have been downgrading their forecast for growth. So we said Q4, they're predicting 7.6%. Well, at the start of the year, they were predicting 10% growth for Q4. So it's dropping. Yeah, it's really a matter of how much revenue recovers after inflation falls. You know, if the input costs for the US start to fall, then that'll be a big improvement for margins. And if we don't have any kind of labour disputes in the United States, then everything should be fine because that would be the other reason why margins might fall. If we, for example, get very strong wage negotiation by US staff, then that could be a problem. However, now that there's almost no unionised labour in the United States, that's unlikely. I mean, I did notice that gasoline prices are shooting up again, which is obviously a primary input cost for a lot of companies. Yeah, there might be a secondary spike in inflation, because you don't have to think very hard to imagine a scenario in which we could get a big energy spike again. If we get a really cold winter, there'll be lots of competition for LNG, liquefied natural gas, between China, Europe, the UK. That could push up energy prices. And we could be looking at a secondary inflation spike, and then that'll feed through into all the other stuff like services, wages, just like it did previously. And Saudi Arabia and OPEC seem determined to drive up the price of oil. They keep announcing output cuts. Yeah, and there's often discussion about wheat because Russia's blocked Ukraine's access to the Black Sea. And so that's going to affect wheat imports, mostly for poor countries, actually, because those depend much more heavily on Ukrainian wheat. Yeah, because they did have the deal which allowed the export of wheat, but that's recently expired and doesn't look like it's going to be renewed anytime soon. So you can see the way to another inflation spike, which would make everything problematic again, and we'd see margins fall probably again. And that secondary hit would be more painful. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned margins, because that's the point everyone was focused on over the last couple of years. And they didn't really get compressed at all. So they actually shot up during the pandemic as companies managed to defend their profit margins. And for this latest quarter, the net profit margin for the S&P 500 is 11.5%, which is almost exactly in line with the five-year average, but it is a little bit down from a year ago when it was 12.2%. And there was an insight from the Bank of England, which I thought wasn't there from the Federal Reserve, at least not in the press conferences, which is that they think that companies and also households 
are actually trying to recoup some of the losses they made due to inflation. And so what will happen is they'll probably keep prices higher and negotiate for wages more strongly because of the fact they missed out during the inflation spike. So the Bank of England's had to adjust its models and kind of override its models in order to accommodate that. And it makes inflation more sticky. I mean, there's definitely some people suggesting that corporates are going to find it harder to defend their margins this time and continue passing on costs if inflation does go high again. So for example, Procter & Gamble, which makes a lot of consumer products, they raised their prices by 7% over the last year, which did prop up their earnings, which looked okay. But if you looked at the sales volume, so how much stuff are they actually selling, regardless of price, that's down 1% year on year. So that would kind of suggest that there is a resistance there and people are starting to get a bit more price conscious again. But on the other hand, Apple have reported a profit margin of 44.5%, which is a record for them, and way above the pre-pandemic margins, which was 37.6%. That's incredible, isn't it? 45% profit margin? Always amazes me how much people are willing to pay for those products. I mean, I'm one of them. I'm a sucker. <laughs> oh, I, just, I just try and avoid it as much as possible. I've got an iPad, but that's it. Look at this. Apple is about to make a fortune off me. I just smashed my phone yesterday. Oh, <laughs> no, I can see the crack in the corner. I know. I'm desperately holding out for the new iPhones in September. I don't want to buy right at the end of the cycle. <laughs> now, another way to look at the earnings is by breaking it down by sector. And usually if you're coming out of recession and things are improving, you'd expect to see cyclicals doing well. Whereas if you're going into a recession, you'd expect cyclicals to underperform. Now, currently, where we're seeing the most earnings growth for Q2 of 2023, year on year, is in consumer discretionary. So it's as if we're coming out of a recession, although the recession never really happened. So this is the luxury end of the good spectrum. Yeah, it's stuff where you don't have to have it, things like Amazon. So if consumer discretionary has done really well, what's not done so well? One of the huge beneficiaries of energy prices surging, of course, was energy. And that's gone down year on year by over 50%, the profit. Materials as well, that was another one which surged. And that's down by around just under 30% year on year. So with energy, it's falling by over 50% year on year. Is that because it just had an amazing year last year? So it's like a base effect? Or is it genuinely in trouble now? It's always relative to where it was last year. And usually it comes with a lag because it takes a while for the higher energy prices to feed through to the profits, to the bottom line. Yeah, I think in historical terms, it's still doing okay at the moment. It's not in a bad place. But yeah, when you compare it to last year, Exxon, for example, their earnings are down 56% this quarter. Yeah, so there has been a big decline. So if you drill into the profits for Exxon Mobil, for example, you can see that the profits surged in 2022 and they've been gradually declining but they're declining to a level that was still higher than it was, say, in 2019. So really, when you're looking at these year-on-year comparisons, you also have to look at that history. Especially for something as spiky as energy. Yeah, it's so volatile. I mean, one story that came out of this earnings season was that Uber reported its first ever quarterly operating profit. So they posted $326 million in pre-tax earnings from operations. Now, sounds good, doesn't it? But they've lost $31.5 billion since 2014. (laughs) So it's a long way home. I think I saw a nice tweet, which was in a newsletter, which had the cumulative losses for Uber 
And you could almost not see the pickup that we've just had yeah. to profitability because they've had so much cumulative loss. It's been terrible. But don't you think it kind of demonstrates the regime shift we're seeing right now? Whereas Uber could get away with it for almost a decade of just losing money hand over fist and having venture capitalists just set their wallets on fire. But now they have to make a profit and they are starting to make a very small profit. So those taxi trips were actually subsidised by some venture capitalists somewhere, probably in California, maybe in Japan. I made a lot of use of those subsidised taxi trips. But I know when I looked at the reasons for the profitability coming in, a lot of it is to do with cost control and laying off staff like a lot of tech companies have done and really just focusing on trying to make money and not burn it so much. Because you think, how expensive can it be to run Uber? They're kind of a middleman platform. Surely it doesn't take that much cash. Well, that many people, once you've got your tech set up, then it's just a matter of maintaining it and ensuring that people use your service. That's it. I think it's marketing. It's a big expense. And also just skirting the law around the world, which is kind of what Uber's done in its growth story. It's kind of moved faster than legislation. And this blitz growth strategy, which a lot of the venture capital companies had in the US, works really well until this crunch time happens. And then either it'll succeed or it'll fail. It's the Warren Buffett thing again, isn't it? It's only when the tide goes out do we see who's swimming naked or who's taking naked Uber rides. But is this going to be kind of like a bellwether for that profitless tech sector, as it was often called? Is it going to be a case of who can do what Uber's doing and start to make a bit of money, even if it's only small to begin with? It's only going to be the case that companies which aren't doing anything useful are going to just wither. You know, that's really what happens during these reality crunch, interest rate increase periods. You've probably heard the adage, neurotics build sandcastles in the sky, psychotics live in them, and psychiatrists collect the rent. Well, I guess in this case, the CEOs who have the vision build the sandcastles in the sky, early adopters like me who like science fiction live in them, and then the people who collect the rent are the investors. And when the rent collection comes, then a lot of these castles are going to collapse. I haven't actually heard that metaphor, but it is good, Roman. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> but this begs the whole question of whether the US growth model, where there was huge amount of capital to throw at these profitless tech companies, if that money dries up, then where is the growth going to come from? Because you can only scale companies like Meta so much or Alphabet or Apple. I mean, it's an interesting question because one of the criticisms about corporate America over the last 10, 15 years is that they diverted too much of their profits into just buying back their own shares, which doesn't do anything for growth or innovation, does it? But maybe that's starting to turn around now. So I saw that in the first seven months of this year, the median S&P 500 company increased its capital expenditures by 15%. So that is a real uptick in investment. And coincidentally, the reduction in share buybacks was also around 15%. I wonder if that's because they didn't have capital expenditures for a while during the pandemic, just to see whether they would make it. It could be. It's also the case that the US just imposed a 1% tax on buybacks. So maybe that shifts the dial in terms of should you buy back your own shares or should you invest for growth? Certainly the US was the big buyback capital of the world. You know, just 10 years ago, almost no other country was doing buybacks. And many people in the UK, for example, were saying, why don't we do it? Because then, you know, we get more capital growth in our stocks and we wouldn't be such a dividend dependent country. 
But I think it's a more productive use of capital. I think if you're going to grow the company's earnings, I think that's a better way to do it. Like you say, if you just buy back your shares, all you're doing is undiluting, you're concentrating your existing stock owners, which is good news for the stock owners. Well, it's good news if they can't grow the company at a faster rate by investing that money. Yeah, exactly. You'd rather them invest it if they can come up with the next iPhone. If they can, and that's the problem. Can you invest the money back into the company and organically grow your profits and your share price? And I think for a lot of these companies, that's going to be really difficult to do. How many iPhones can you sell to people now that the market's saturated, not just developed markets, but also countries like China? Certainly some of those big drivers of tech earnings seem to be slowing down. So Apple's results definitely showed a cooling of the iPhone market and a big cooling in the iPad market. And obviously they're launching their headset and virtual reality thing next year, but that's probably not going to move the needle hardly at all. It's such a a niche product to begin with. So where's the growth going to come from? I know they've got these enormous margins, but there has to be a new product category at some point. So you drink the Apple Kool-Aid, Michael. Am I going to see you wearing one of those virtual headsets during one of these recording sessions? Would you have your goggles on? If you lend me three and a half thousand dollars, I'll do it for you and review it. (laughs) It would be worth it just for the pictures. Yeah. Okay. I think it's only going to be available in the US to begin with because it's so hard to manufacture. So company trip out to New York then? Yeah. All on expenses. The pension craft dollar. Naturally. I mean, the thing with information technology as a sector generally is it has a super high forward PE ratio. So it's 27 times forward earnings. And you compare that to the lowest PE ratio, which is for energy, which is under 12. And if you look at the five-year average for energy, it's incredibly low, the multiple. It was 2.9 times. But of course, that was going through the period when we had prices at, well, futures prices were below zero. They were negative for a short period of time. For oil, yeah. But it kind of shows that if you manage to buy something when it's like ridiculously cheap, your returns are probably going to be good if it recovers. Yeah, and all of these indices do. And you can buy single sector indices in the US. And this is a fairly reliable way to make money. You just wait till there's some kind of crisis that affects one sector and buy it by the single sector ETF. That's not a recommendation, by the way. (laughs) It sounds a lot like a recommendation. (laughs) Historically, it works very well. You did buy energy, didn't you, when it was super cheap? I did. Or you all bought commodities, didn't you? I bought commodities and that did incredibly well. And I bought banks just after the regional banking crisis. And that's starting to do well. The thing is, when you're looking at it on a sector basis now, nothing looks egregiously cheap to me. Like if you're looking for things that are significantly below their five-year or 10-year average, there aren't any in the US. Nope. And that's the signal itself. I think that's another way to think about valuations. Look at each of the sectors and see if there are any bargains. And if there aren't, as there aren't now, that's telling you something. And the other thing you can look at is compare the S&P 500 to other markets around the world. And again, when you do that, it looks to be almost the most expensive it's been going back 30 years, other than what looks like one single day in 2008. That's ominous, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So there's a nice graph from Yardani, which shows the relative PE ratio for the S&P 500 versus the all-country world index. Now, the general shape of the graph is trending upwards, particularly during this decade of zero interest rates. So we've gone from almost no excess valuation for the US in 2009 to 
almost the largest in history, certainly going back to 1995. So if you do believe in US exceptionalism, yeah, fine. But historically, this is not well supported. Now, usually when people start to talk about multiples being irrelevant, it's when they're high. You know, they say this time is different only when it's at an extreme level to try and justify markets being so high. I guess if you've got exposure, you'll think of anything to make up an excuse. But I guess the question is, what do you do about it as an investor? Let's say we look at it and we think, yeah, the S&P does look a bit overvalued. Like I'm fully invested in the global indices, so I'm not overweight the US, but I'm not underweight either. And I'm not going to start holding money back from the market or selling stocks, hoping for a downturn. That just seems like a fool's errand, as we've always said. Don't really want to start timing the market. I can't do anything because I'm just in one single global equity index fund. So I can't, I can't change the US weighting. I can't dial it down. What I could do is buy regional funds. And that way I could increase my non-US weight effectively. But I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm not confident enough about it to do that, though. Like, I'm not a high conviction investor. I just sort of cling to the index globally and hope that'll see me okay. This is it. If there's one thing I've learned, it's that whenever I try to be clever, it goes wrong. (laughs) You know, you've got a really good thesis. You really think about the allocations around that thesis. You position it, you execute it, and then the world changes completely. But what could prove this thesis that the US is relatively overvalued versus the rest of the world? What could prove that to be incorrect and the US actually does keep doing really well? Valuations would stay high. And this increase in valuation, relative valuation for the US, would just stay high forever. But history teaches us that, you know, there isn't a country which is exceptional over the long term. There will be a point at which it loses its mojo and eventually starts to normalise. The US is as close as you can get to a country that's exceptional over the long term, though. It is now. And, you know, there have been countries that were exceptional in the past. Of course, the UK was pretty exceptional, mostly because of the Navy. But of course, what happened to the UK is a matter of record, and it's not a pretty story. But it did last a long time. But the country which is really exceptional, I think, is Holland, you know, the Dutch, because they are so small as a country, but because of their Navy, They had huge sway and also generated a lot of profit, you know, because of the Dutch East India Company. So that's really a country which has punched above its weight as a financial market. And it generated a lot of wealth for them as a country. But of course, that exceptionalism ended as well. It was about as good a moat as you could get, right? And even that was (laughs) beaten down in the end. Yeah, eventually there are these forces of attrition which make sure that these countries eventually normalise. And I'm sure the US will be the same. It's just a question of when. But is there no chance that the US economy is just so strong, it grows again so rapidly, their companies are successful in maintaining their margins and growing their profits as fast or faster than analysts think, and therefore the multiple looks less ridiculous because their earnings grow to meet it? Yeah, and I think that's a possibility. Now that it's looking like there will be a soft landing in the US, the Fed seems to have pulled it off. Nobody thought they would. But it seems as if we're not going to get a recession. At least it's looking unlikely. I've heard some people referring to the possibility of a trampoline landing. Sorry to take us back to trampolines, (laughs) but that we're just about to see a bounce back in inflation. Yeah, so the secondary inflation spike would obviously be a problem for the US. But if it was energy driven, remember their energy policy is that they generate a lot of their own. So they are more self-sufficient than countries in Europe, say. 
So I'm not convinced that it would be an all-out disaster for the US if there was another energy spike. It really depends on the source of the inflation. I think the biggest risk for the US is that people stop buying their tech products, either due to legislation, so the European Union could say, look, we're going to stop using these overpriced products. Oh yeah, what are we going to use? Do we make anything in Europe anymore? <laughs> we're going to use Nokia's again, are we? <laughs> well, that's the problem. It's a substitution. What are you going to substitute it with? But I think these anti-competitive laws could be a problem for the US because if there is an alternative that comes along in terms of European tech or Asian tech, in China, for example, they could develop alternative products, then you know that could be a problem. Because it's hard to overstate how important those handful of megatech companies have been to US returns over the last decade, even the last year. Or it could be that the tech simply moves on. So, for example, 5G in China is much more developed and advanced than it is in the US in terms of rollout. So that's one example where the tech has kind of moved. The US didn't move fast enough for whatever reason. China simply moved ahead. So I think that's the kind of means by which other countries come to the fore. Maybe it's to do with planning. Maybe it's to do with luck. I think a lot of it's to do with luck. But that's probably how it'll change. Now, US exceptionalism is something that we've been discussing recently in Pension Craft. If you want to discuss topics like that and get in on the conversation, then you can learn more by going to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. Are share buybacks equivalent to dividends? When it comes to valuations, they are. So if you look at Aswath Damodaran's spreadsheets for valuation, he creates something called shareholder yield, which is the sum of the two, dividend yield and buyback yield. And the two are effectively generating higher return for the investor. So he treats them as equivalent, which kind of makes sense, I think. I mean, they're definitely both ways of returning capital to shareholders, aren't they? So in the case of a dividend, that's the company literally taking its cash and paying it to its investors. And with a buyback, it's the company taking its cash. It could be from operations or it could be from raising debt and then using it to buy back its own shares. The really questionable one, I think, is the debt-funded buybacks. That's just dodgy. It's not uncommon, though. I know, I know, I know. But if I had the choice and I had to choose a company, you clearly go for the one where they take cash, which they've generated themselves, and buy back their shares. And that way, effectively, they're handing you more of their shares for free. So how does a buyback work practically then? Why is it good for shareholders? Because if they're buying back shares, it might not be me that's selling my shares back to the company. Well, the idea is that if you do own a share, you effectively have a right to the future profits of the company. Now, of course, you only get paid the dividends. Unfortunately, in the US, those are quite stingy. But you'll get more of those dividends because there are less shareholders to distribute the dividends to. So in that sense, you're getting more of the company, you own more of it, and you'll get more of the dividends if they exist. And why would management do this? Well, management likes to see their share price increase. Clearly, that's to their benefit. Often they have share options, and those share options will go up in value because a share buyback pushes up the price of the stock. And also, I guess, earnings per share is a metric that a lot of management are bonused on, and if you reduce the number of public shares outstanding, then earnings per share obviously mechanically goes up. Yeah, this is the concentration effect. Uh, you haven't really increased the amount of turnover for the company. You've just parceled it up into less units. 
So people did used to see it as share manipulation, stock price manipulation, but then they decided it wasn't and everything's fine. It is a kind of financial engineering, I guess. But I kind of think if you don't have any better use for your capital, but you don't have any projects that are going to give you a high enough return, then yeah, it's a fair enough thing to do with the company's money as long as the stock price isn't too high, right? If you buy it back when it's overpriced, well, then you're just destroying shareholder value. Yeah, this is always Warren Buffett's point, which is if you overpay for those shares, then it's destroying value. I guess the other point here is that the US tax system favours capital gain. It taxes that less heavily. So US investors prefer growth, capital growth, than income. Whereas in the UK, we're quite happy to draw as much dividend out of our companies as possible. It was interesting that the Inflation Reduction Act, as it was called last year, imposed a 1% tax on stock buybacks, which went into effect at the start of this year. I mean, it's interesting that buybacks became so controversial that they decided to put this tax on there. Because there's a quote from Warren Buffett where he kind of pushes back on that. And he says, when you are told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders or to the country, or particularly beneficial to CEOs, you are listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue, characters that are not mutually exclusive. He says, oh, harsh. (laughs) It's not often you hear Warren Buffett being so punchy, but he loves a stock buyback. One of the reasons he loves his Apple shareholding is because Apple keep buying back their own stock and he's getting a more and more concentrated holding. Yeah, he loves the fact that he didn't have to actually buy any more, but he owns more of the company now. And he owns quite a big chunk of Apple. He does, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that dividend investing has been really popular, hasn't it, with people? They like the idea of buying companies who are paying them a high dividend every year. But with the rise of share buybacks over the last 10, 15 years... You could do something similar where you invest in the companies which have got a high buyback yield, as in they're buying back a lot of their stock every year. So there are various indexes which track these two things. So you could look at the S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats, or you could look at the NASDAQ US Buyback Achievers Index. And what's really interesting is that the total returns since 2007 are almost identical at just over 10% for both those indices, the dividends and the buybacks. But the volatility is quite a lot higher for the companies in the buyback index. I was just looking at one of the trackers for the NASDAQ US Buyback Achievers Index. And it is quite concentrated in terms of sectors. So if you combine consumer discretionary, financials and healthcare, it's almost 60% of the total index. So it's mostly in those three sectors. It's interesting the way they define that index. So it's US companies that have seen a net reduction in shares of 5% or more in the trailing 12 months. So to make it in there, you've got to have been buying back quite a lot of your stock. And if you look at the US market as a whole, I mean, you always think that, oh yeah, there'll be more shares issued all the time. But it's actually a shrinking market because of the fact there have been all these buybacks, particularly by behemoths like Apple, where that's going to make a huge impact on the size of the market overall. S&P 500 companies bought back over $1 trillion worth of their stock last year. Now, the UK market is about $2.4 trillion. So you could buy back about half the UK market every year, although you probably wouldn't want to if you're... No, they're not going to do that, are they? They're just going to keep buying their Apple stock back. I mean, there are funds that have been tailored to this phenomenon of share buybacks and dividends. So there's one that combines both, which is the iShares Core Dividend ETF. D-I-V-B is the ticker. 
And that is 75% weighted to stocks with high dividend yields and 25% weighted to stocks with high buyback yields. So they're kind of hedging their bets there. Yeah, well, don't you have to? If we're saying that dividends and buybacks are roughly equivalent, they're ways to return money to shareholders, why would you favour one or the other? Because we often say the US has a low dividend yield, but we're kind of only seeing half the picture there, aren't we? Yeah, now that we've got the tax, I guess it's broken the symmetry, but maybe they'll favour dividend income higher in future. Or maybe we'll see the US move closer to the UK market, which is to have high dividend yields. The thing is, I think US investors don't like dividends so much because, you know, you have to pay income tax on them in the year you receive them. Whereas with a buyback, which hopefully raises the price of the stock, you don't have to sell it and you won't pay capital gains tax until you sell that stock. Yeah, and they don't have total return funds, so you can't automatically have the reinvested dividends in an ETF. So that's the problem, I guess, from their point of view. In the UK, we just see everything accumulated in one of these accumulation funds. But I guess generally, you and I, we don't really favour investing for dividends or for buybacks, right? We like to invest for total return, generally. Yep, return is return. It all tastes like chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.